0: Welcome back to American Psyop, a podcast miniseries in nine parts. I'm Emily Bix, continuing my conversation with Wesley Clark Jr. and our attempt to figure out what happened to him.
1: Hey, Emily, how you doing today?
0: Doing great. How are you?
1: Good. I try and go over all the stuff we talked about and it just spins through my mind because I, I keep wondering how do I communicate this really complex event that happened. Like the thing itself only lasted a week, but the buildup and the the rundown off it lasted months and years.
0: The whole Standing Rock episode was a week.
1: Just not even.
0: But looking back, you realize there's been years of oh, yeah. people and events that are directly connected.
1: To Completely. This.
0: Okay, so last week, Wes, we went through your film career starting in 1996 and how that opened you up to being targeted in operations up through 2015. This week, we're going to start getting into what you think is sort of the big one, the PSYOP that took over your life in one way or another for almost a year and drove you insane. And, uh, well, it's the reason we're sitting here today. That's right. So far, we've seen how you've been connected to three industries, film, political campaigning, and the military, and how they've invited threats, scriptors, intelligence ops in their own ways, and how each made you susceptible to being targeted. But the way you got dragged into the big one was through activism, and your activism kind of grew out of your career as a political pundit.
1: Yeah, because I care about things, and the more I think about things or talk about something and I care about it, I'm like, I've got to do something.
0: So how do you think being involved in those fields made you specifically
1: vulnerable? If you're controlling the stories that are going to be talked about, that's what people pay millions of dollars in advertising for. And an activism is easily targetable because it's already infiltrated by state actors, whether informants or FBI, by whatever industry group it'll be affecting. And most activism is geared towards generating press coverage towards a certain subject intelligence operations are interested in that because it's all about controlling the narrative and influencing the population.
0: Okay, let's start with how you became a political pundit back in 2004.
1: So I need to start out with The Young Turks, a show I used to co-host.
0: And The Young Turks, is a liberal news outlet which started as a radio show before expanding to a news streaming channel in 2006. It's grown since then and currently has over 12 million subscribers across its different channels.
1: Out of Political fundraiser for my father in Los Angeles in I think January 2004. One of the last events he had is when I met Cenk Kuehr from The Young Turks.
2: All right, welcome to The Young Turks.
1: Jink was the host of the show and the head of the network. And I met him and Ben Mankiewicz, and they were like, "Hey, man, you want to come talk to us tomorrow on our radio show?" And I'm like, "Yeah, sure, why not?" Young Turks and Air America and a couple other blogs like Daily Coast back then, Democratic Underground. They were kind of groundbreaking.
0: Right. And this is a world before Twitter and, and Facebook. And it's a world before Twitter and Facebook where... and
1: everything else. So I went down and did the Young Turks, got along with them, did an hour or two on the radio. with. What was
0: the content? What were they asking you about?
1: Just whatever the top 10 stories were in the news that day. And for like a real view of what's going on politically. So... I came down and co-hosted the show with them and they really liked it.
0: Young Turks, everybody. Uh, ben
1: and uh, Wes Clark uh, here today. Uh, Wes, uh, thanks as always for hey, My uh, pleasure. Coming, It's fun. And so when they were traveling or out of town, I would host the show.
2: I mean, Wes, am I misreading it or does it seem like it's just as simple as just coming out stronger? No, it's, it's not a matter of just coming out strong. It's just,
1: it's a matter of coming out in a way that's right the president of the united states authorized our servicemen to torture people period i've always enjoyed you know talking shit about history and politics and geopolitics and that was a chance to do it
2: unfortunately not the republicans within the democratic caucus that provision was defeated and taken out of the bill what do you think dick cheney and george bush
1: gonna interpret that as let's drop Bombs. And, you know, I got like 50 or 100 bucks every time I spent four hours going to do it. So I was like, this is a great way to make a little bit of side money as I'm writing. And I never understood how popular it was. So for me, sitting down there and doing shows in the aughts and even in like 2010, I was like, yeah, here we are broadcasting to 2000 people worldwide. (laughs) I didn't understand that they were getting millions of viewers.
0: Until when?
1: Well, oh, till like 2012 or 13. They would just send me an email like, here's the four articles we're going to discuss today. So, you know, you'd read an article that was from the New York Times or wherever, and then just come up with, hmm, this will be my take on this argument. Are you comfortable with the idea of a President Palin being the 45th President of the United States? They get a crazier person every four years to come out and run, so much less experience and more extreme ideas, and the press is supposed to go, Oh yeah, all things are equal. And it was easy because I was a news junkie and all I'd have to go in and just know off the top of my head, kind of the basic history behind stuff. And here's the story we'll be talking about. It's not like real reporting. It's you're simply giving your opinion on a story somebody else wrote. It's important to understand they're not reporters. They hadn't worked as reporters. It wasn't, it was a news show, but it was like, we're going to talk about other people's news that other reporters found. And that we may not fully understand, but we're going to try and translate that to our
2: audience. A few days ago, Jake and I were talking about this website called SeekingArrangement.com. Okay, the New York Times Mm. wrote a really impressive article about it.
1: I read that article. You read that article. Yes, I did. And it was interesting, but it's also led to the world that we live in now, where the journalism is like competing PR agencies trying to push their six talking points on whatever the policy issue is. So I'd heard all this at first when I was at Georgetown back in the early 90s. Everybody had the dream back then, like, there was this guy named Peter Jennings.
2: From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. This weekend, it will be two years since the Gulf War began with a prolonged air attack designed to soften up a large Iraqi army.
1: Never be like, I want to be like Peter Jennings and travel the world and be a cool dude and, like, understand what's happening at a big scale. And our teacher goes, you can just put your dreams of being Peter Jennings in the garbage. He said, whatever journalism used to be, it no longer is. And none of you will have real paying jobs in journalism. So just give it up. That was like day one.
0: Why did he say that?
1: They were stripping down all the newsrooms around the country. This all began with the advent of CNN and and other full-time 24-hour news services. Then it expanded to partisan cable news then it expanded to social media. And so these things don't happen overnight. They happen over decades. To tie that in, so remember my buddy Porter that got me to move out to LA that I went to high school with? He wound up producing Sean Hannity's show and Tucker Carlson's show. And I talked to him and he said, listen, man, we're making 17 times the investment put into the shows. You can't do that doing an actual news show but you can do that doing an opinion show because facts are expensive to come by because you have to hire reporters.
0: And in a lot of ways that's made all of us more susceptible to influence.
1: Yes. How it translates to America becoming susceptible to operations is because it's it's that moment of agitation where people's minds are open to bad ideas. You know what's going to get them worked up. So you push content that gets them worked up. And within that content then you slip in your own message.
0: And with the growth of YouTube and Facebook, this problem has gotten just completely out of hand.
1: Yeah. You could know how to agitate somebody based on their online behavior. So it's like that weird thing where you'd have, you know, kind of new age yoga people suddenly now being accused of, you're actually supporting the right wing because the people who are influencing them know, hey man, these yoga people are susceptible to these ideas. And I've got these other ideas they may not like, but if I couch it in this argument to them, they're going to buy that and the only standard is how many views do you have so if you can control how many views someone has or how something is spread or who it's targeted specifically to, you can have an enormous influence on a country
0: right so you're appearing on the young Turks that's been a constant it was a constant posting.
1: thing it was fun I mean it was a good group of people but We didn't like hang out. Like, I think I went to dinner with Jake and his wife once, maybe twice in like 12 years. I backed off some in 2010. I looked back at a clip they had of me and I was like, holy shit, that's PTSD right there. What? Like an emotional reaction to something. Remember
0: what triggered that for you?
1: It was some story we were doing about stock buybacks. And I just, I just like lost my shit.
2: I mean, imagine a poor guy out there in their country, a middle class guy who gives a vote to a Republican thinking that he's going to stand up for. Mm-hmm. What a sad, sad joke. Well, I,
1: look, I, I think because look, I'm not a total anti-capitalist. I think if someone's an actual entrepreneur and they start a business and they've suffered through, you know, years of poverty to get that business up and running, they should reap the rewards of it. But none of the motherfuckers running these companies fucking did that. None of them fucking did it. They all went to fucking business school and went out and went into a high level fucking VP job where they betrayed all the people in the company fucking below them so they could sell it off and put fucking cash in their pockets. And they think they fucking deserve it. And you chumps have to fucking pay for it. That's what you're being fucking told by the Republican
2: Party. That's entirely right.
1: That's one of the things where I was like, wow, I need to get help. Because PTSD takes you from zero to a hundred, like instantly. When you have it, you're walking around with this glass that's like full all the way to the rim and just one fucking drop and it's going to overflow.
0: So you weren't working with them
1: so, so all I the took, time. Yeah. So-, so I took like six, seven months off in 2011. Schenk at the Young Turks had invited me to this salon at Oliver Stone's house.
0: And Oliver Stone is an Oscar-winning film director who was prominent in the 80s and 90s, but who in recent years has largely taken to producing documentaries, which are hard to be seen as anything other than Russian propaganda.
1: And I went, and Glenn Greenwald was kind of the headliner of it.
0: Glenn Greenwald is a journalist who gained prominence for his reporting on the Edward Snowden leaks in 2013. But during the Trump years, he became most known for his frequent appearances on Tucker Carlson's show and aggressively dismissing concerns about the Russian attack on the 2016 election.
1: And it was all about overreach from the intelligence agencies. And everybody needed to unite on it, that we needed to fight Obama like tooth and nail. And for me, you know, it's nothing I hadn't heard before. It's a thing I've never quite understood, people being upset that the government can see our communications when private companies can already see our communications. The government was just adapting what private companies could already do.
0: So who else did you meet at this party, at Oliver Stone's house? Larry
1: Flint was there. Mm-hmm. Um, not that interesting to talk to. Kind of cranky. As we walk down this road to Standing Rock, there's one last piece I need to fit in in order for it all to make sense. So I'd gotten hired to write this script for a movie called The Objective in like 2007 by a British friend of mine named Jeremy. It's like, mate, we have got 30 pages. It's got to get into the Bond company in seven days. Just put anything down. I wrote the script. but I was going over the notes with the producer goes, Oh, meet me down at the dear John's. He's like a Welsh dude. I was sitting there with him and it was just me and him at the bar and three or four elderly patrons. And that was it. And suddenly as I'm getting the notes, I hear, give me your fucking jewelry, bitch. And I thought maybe some guy found out his fiance is cheating on him. He wants the ring back. Uh, but I turn and there's a guy with a ski mask and a pistol pointed directly at the bartender's head, four to five feet away. And then there's another guy with a shotgun and a ski mask covering the people at the Baby Grand Piano. And I turned to Jeremy and I was like, I'm getting out of here right now. And I just smoothly grabbed my computer, <laughs> turned, started to walk out the door, like calm, like I didn't see anything. And I hear, freeze, motherfucker, we'll kill you. But I was so close to the door, I just took off out that door and called the police. And like 10 minutes later, the guys were gone. They took off the second I walked out. They went and they made the movie. A remote tribal region of Afghanistan. Every time we come to this country, it tries to spare us back out. And he invites me out to dinner in 2011. Tells me, no, the movie's been pirated now. It's leaked on peer-to-peer networks. There may not be any money, but when money comes in, we could create a bank account for you in Monaco so you wouldn't have to pay any tax. I'm like, I was in the army. I was an ROTC scholarship, like taxes paid for my whole life. Like, why would I not do my patriotic service as an American? And at dinner was Nora Maccabee,
0: And this is the first time you were meeting First
1: time I meet her in 2011.
0: And Nora gets us to Standing Rock?
1: I mean, Nora is definitely a part of whatever got me to Standing Rock and Nora and I went outside and had a cigarette, and she's like, I really admire your patriotism. I work with James Woolsey, who's an ex-head of the CIA, on this renewable energy something task force.
2: Where is it that we source page six of the New York Post as a reason for bringing a guest on, but he said that if President Bush unveils a strong environmentally conscious initiatives in his State of the Union, this was back earlier the, the week, The credit goes to Nora McAbee. It also connects this to a meeting you had with the Secretary of Defense. And so he listened to you and then referred his thoughts to the president. Is that what happened? I think anybody uh, who's, who's aware that it was 70 degrees outside yesterday knows what's up and that we don't need to finance the enemy any longer. What was her job?
1: She was a writer. She'd written Buffalo Soldiers, which was like a movie set in the 1970s about a drug dealer in Germany. But she really liked to talk about geopolitics and intelligence and was really pushing like these Woolsey connection hard. And it was at the end of the dinner. it was like, okay, you know, we'll keep in touch. But I didn't hear from her for a couple of years. Like everybody, they check in first. What's this person like? Then I saw her again, probably 2014 before Milan called me to go to St. Kitts. And she needed my help working on a script.
0: And she lived in LA.
1: No, she lived in D.C. Oh. She was just out here in L.A., but she seemed to know, like, everybody. So it's summer 2016, and Donald Trump's the Republican nominee.
2: I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it.
1: It's like at this moment, everything started to come into my life that set me on a course to do a whole lot in six months and then spend the next several years wondering what happened. Now, at this time, I'd wanted to do other stuff at Young Turks. And I was like, well, if I'm thinking about going that route, I should probably get on Twitter. So I got on Twitter in 2016. And one of the first people I met was a Young Turks fan who was in human resources and was like, Hey, let's meet and talk about your resume and what you're going to do next. I'm like, cool, let's do that.
0: Wait. So he started following you on Twitter, sent you a message. Oh, she, she, okay.
1: Sedef. And she was a big young Turks fan and a contributor to the show. And she was like Turkish herself, like Turkish American. And about our age, like she was like 47, 48. And it worked for like big companies like Oracle and GE. So I took her advice really seriously about a change in career.
2: My name is Sedef Bukataman. I am a lead consultant with Proactive Talent Strategies. Uh, prior to that, I have worked at big companies, Northell, Ernst & Young, First short Period, SpaceX, and then Sonos.
1: So I meet Sedef, who becomes instant best friends with my wife and is cool and fun to hang out with and funny and a good sense of humor. And she's like, I'm into dog rescue. So we've got all these dogs and she had a dog and smoked the same brand of cigarettes, like liked ripping bong hits, like moved down from Santa Barbara to LA to just hang out with us after my wife got in this horrific bicycle accident. And there's just been a coup in Turkey that I've sat there watching with my Turkish friend Sedef online is within minutes of, you know, tanks being in the street.
2: Barbara, w- what's going on? It sounds as though uh, the military might be trying to get control of the government in Turkey. I- is that accurate? Well, uh, across Washington, agencies are scrambling uh, to figure out exactly what is going on.
1: And talking with her about, it's not like a real coup, and then watching it collapse.
2: And as we come on the air this Saturday morning, there are signs that the coup has been thwarted. The government says 2,800 plotters have been arrested.
1: And watching Erdogan assume dictatorial powers.
2: There's been discomfort over the last several years as Mr. Erdogan's policies became more and more stringent in terms of democracy. So the big question going forward is how big is this crackdown really going to be? Right now we've seen about 6,000 people arrested. But if he stops now, the question of course is, Can the democratic process really be restarted here in Turkey? We can certainly see this situation getting very, very dark, very, very fast.
1: And looking at each other and thinking, Donald Trump is going to do this in the United States. Remember my buddy Porter that got me to move out to LA, Mm -hmm. who moved out to New York and started working for Fox? So he was producing Sean Hannity's show at that point. And I talked to him and I said, dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, this guy's going to cause real damage to the United States. He goes, the ratings are great. He goes, it's all about the ratings. And I just thought he's going to cause damage. And he didn't care.
0: Did that bother you?
1: Yeah, it bothered me. But it's not like we talked a lot. It was like, God, you motherfucker. And then, you know, talk to you in another year type of thing. And I got contacted by this guy, Mike Lustig, who I'd met with Nora. And he ran an online network called The Lip TV.
2: Ready for uncensored, unscripted conversation that picks up where the
1: mainstream leaves off? From news, technology, entertainment, sex, and politics, The Lip TV brings independent thought to you every day. And their number one show was Sean Stone's Buzzsaw.
0: So just to clarify, so this is Oliver Stone's son. Yes. Sean Stone has a show.
1: With Lip TV. Okay. And it's their most successful show, and it's a total conspiracy show. You know everything's a conspiracy hi i'm sean stone the host of buzzsaw this week on our sunday special edition of buzzsaw we interview chris milligan the publisher of trine day press he'll be talking about his personal insights into the secret societies that rule the world and when michael lustig talked to me about doing a show he says you know i kind of wanted to balance it out he's like what do you think of conspiracies and i'm like like there's organized crime it works in a certain way there's state intelligence agencies they work in a certain way There's rich people and networks of people trying to get certain things they want in life, but there's no actual secret organization like coordinating large events around the world because first, nobody can keep a secret.
0: How we know we landed on the moon.
1: Yeah. It would be hundreds of thousands of people keeping a secret in the modern age, which is a lot more difficult than if you could isolate them all on a base in New Mexico, like in World War II. So I did this show for a couple weeks for Michael Lustig from the Lip TV. Hi, and welcome to the West Clark Jr. Show. We're joined today by retired General Dan Chrisman, who now works for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You know, cover current events, maybe do an interview or two. And then it got canceled. One of the stories we did was on a Saudi prince who'd kidnapped and assaulted an escort in Los Angeles and then fled to the airport before he could be charged. And the picture they ran on it was of Mohammed bin Salman. He's the like, you know, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. So it got like hundreds of thousands of hits in Saudi Arabia for all these people that thought MBS had somehow been arrested for this in LA or been charged. So they totally canceled the show.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's tough. You put the wrong photo on a story. It's
1: and I didn't put the photo on. It was like, you know, the the producer. So it gets canceled. Then Mike says, listen. Sean Stone wants to meet you and like, you know, here's his email address. And we talk about maybe working on a project together, but we mainly talk about the environment and stuff like that.
0: Was it a phone call or?
1: It was a phone call. And then we, we met up in person and then we emailed back and forth a couple of times and he could kind of tell the things I was passionate about, the kind of stories I wanted to tell. But then I didn't hear from him anymore. And then Nora came out. And was with Michael Lustig. And then I found out Mel Gibson was the funder behind the Lip TV. And I thought, that's kind of weird.
0: That you didn't know that before? That I didn't
1: know that before, that Nora had been aware of that. But I hadn't been you. aware of it. Yeah, and didn't tell me. Trevor comes back in at that stage. So Trevor was an ex-Gates Foundation guy who would worked in a bank in New York that a friend of mine had worked in. And Trevor's like, hey man, there's this group called Climate Mobilization. I know you're always talking about climate change, and they've got some good ideas, and you might want to talk to these people. Climate Mobilization was formed out of New York by a couple people who were part of Occupy Wall Street. I'd reached this conclusion that summer that, holy shit, climate change is really happening and nobody's going to do anything about it, and this is going to end the life of my children like prematurely and it's going to totally collapse civilization. And I had to do something.
0: Okay, so the 2016 presidential election is heating up. You're working again as a political pundit, and a friend you haven't spoken to in years suggests you start getting involved in activism by joining a climate change group called Climate Mobilization? That's correct. And this is the first time you dip your toe into activism?
1: I mean, Young Turks organized a couple protests back under Bush. That was it. And Nora comes back out to L.A. probably in August. We were mainly talking about Standing Rock. So
0: Standing Rock is a topic of conversation that you and Nora had spoken about.
1: Yeah, a couple times.
0: What did Standing Rock mean to you in September 2016?
1: It meant to me that there were Native Americans, indigenous Americans who were being abused by our government and by private corporations. To break treaties that this country signed, which is a violation of the Constitution, in order to transport oil across their reservations, endangering the health of the rivers that feed the Midwestern breadbasket. And the whole purpose of the protest was to stop the pipeline from going under the river and endangering the water. I mean, we signed treaties with these nations. And these treaties, according to the Constitution, that's law. And we're there breaking the treaties for an oil company.
0: And this was a well-known issue. Yeah, in issue. summer in
1: summer of 2016, it was a well-known issue. It was the number one uh, environmental protest going on.
0: So it was and high on everyone's mind. It was high
1: it was high on everyone's mind. Not the national press, but among anybody following climate change issues or Human rights activists, everybody's paying attention to it. A protest in North Dakota against a major oil pipeline continues to grow. Over 100 Native American tribes have joined the fight against the project, saying that it threatens one tribe's water supply and its sacred lands.
2: The pipeline's original path crossed the Missouri River just north of Bismarck, a city that is 90% white. But when concerns were raised about a potential oil spill there, The pipeline was rerouted south to go under the river right next to the Standing Rock Reservation. The Missouri River is the reservation's primary source of drinking water. The tribe says a spill there could be catastrophic for them.
1: And a couple weeks later, this is September 2016. Mm -hmm. Nora calls me and she's like, I've got this guy who really wants to meet you. Will you take the phone call? I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, I will literally talk to anybody. Do so you this, get a name? You yeah, his name's James Martinez, and he's some friend of hers and wanted to talk to me. About? Standing Rock. Tonight, my guest is James Martinez. James is the world's first radio talk show host. To uncover the real truth about banking, he began his education on the board of advisors of the Freedom of Thought Foundation with such luminaries as Walter Bower, author of Operation Mind Control. Hey, thank you very much for having me. What I've done quietly for many, many years on the radio is create a, a broadcast and scenario so that uh, could be kind of like the defragmentation process mm. of individuals bathing in electrical environment, understanding what's happening, them understanding the money situation, understanding the new circumstances that we've arrived at mm. as a as a planet and as a species. So he calls me up. James Martinez calls me up. He's like. Russell Means wants you to save the Lakota, man. And I'm like, Russell Means was an American activist and an actor who died a few years earlier, but he was like, I'm great friends with Russell Means and I'm connected to all the people at Standing Rock and we need to get like you and your dad out there to protect the Lakota.
0: But he's telling you a dead person and he's working with.
1: Well, no, he's telling me that person's spirit moved him to call me.
0: Wait, so just to clarify that, this guy calls. You accept his phone call. I
1: accept his phone call. Because Nor
0: said he Nora would like said, to talk to you.
1: This guy wants to talk to me about Standing Rock.
0: And he says the spirit of Russell
1: was yes. like, you
0: need to talk to Wes. Yes. So you take it with a grain of salt?
1: I take everything with a grain of salt. But at the same time, I don't ridicule people's ideas when they present them to me. Sure. Because everybody sees the world through a different lens. You know, he's like, I've been connected to the tribe for like 10 years and people in the tribe. And there's a whole like subculture of white people who like to play pretendians. And then there's some people who are activists. And I couldn't tell which kind of subset James Martinez fell into. But I'm like, yeah, I'll help. I'll talk to somebody. So he's connected to some of the female elders that are in the protest. How One, long has
0: the protest been going on?
1: Months. Okay. By this point. So he calls me as I'm driving my kids home from school. He's like, hey, I got Phyllis on the line. Phyllis is one of the leaders of the protest.
0: And I struggled all my life. I lived on the river. And I detest the acts of war that
2: were committed on our people. And that we have to be criminalized to make our struggle.
1: And I talked to Phyllis Young. She calls me. She's like in her 70s, like she was one of the original AIM, the American Indian Movement folks in the early 70s who, you know, took actions. Got it. So this is the whole movement that, you know, Russell Means had promoted, but also a lot of people went to jail for. And she's talking to me and they'd just been assaulted by like dogs and mercenaries and
2: beaten and gassed on their own land. Even though the pipeline is just off their reservation, it still runs right through areas they say are sacred ancestral grounds. 10 days ago, the tribe submitted evidence of newly discovered artifacts and burial sites, asking a state court for an emergency injunction. But before the court could make a decision, bulldozers started digging in that area. Protesters broke through a fence to try to stop them. They were met with pepper spray and guard dogs. And I can hear fear
1: in her voice. And it brought me back to like a place where I was a kid in church hearing like, are you your brother's keeper? Like, what have you done for the least of my children type of thing from the Bible? It's like a light switch went off in my head. You know, I told you I hadn't really been religious at all. And I, I suddenly became like that instant, like a, like the reverse of a chill went through me.
0: Was it her voice? was it
1: it was the fear in her voice and i thought i'm going to help these people no matter what because i've heard fear in an old woman's voice
0: so after getting involved with activism with climate mobilization this guy james martinez pulls you into another movement standing rock which also has a climate change component and you've just become deeply emotionally involved after talking to phyllis one of the leaders of the protest
1: that's right. She's like, get your dad to help us. Like, we need people to come out here. We need, we need, why do they want your
0: dad? Us.
1: Because when he ran for president, he spoke in favor of sovereignty rights for tribes and she wanted him involved. And I call my dad about Standing Rock and he, he was like, nope, not getting involved. He's like, you can get involved. Uh, I'm not getting involved.
0: Why do you think he said that?
1: He's super cautious about everything. He goes, do what you're going to do. You know, I can't stop you, but I'm not going to be a part of it. And I spent the next month talking to every person I knew who could do something about it.
0: Like all your political connections. All my
1: political connections, all my press connections, all my diplomatic connections, all my legal connections. I mean, I literally had a dude I was in R T C with who was a lawyer for the Corps of Engineers who dealt with tribal issues. And every person was like, how much am I getting paid up front? So nobody would do anything. And it was just getting increasingly frustrating. But James would come over almost every day and sit there as I tried to call people. And
0: And James is?
1: James is the guy that came at me through Nora, the guy who brought me into Standing Rock. I'd talk to Phyllis maybe like once a week or once every two weeks. And the updates were always worse and worse and worse. And at the same time, Trevor's putting me in touch with all these climate mobilization people. They were coming out to Los Angeles to do a fundraiser at the end of October.
0: And this was the organization you got involved with before you jumped into Standing Rock?
1: Correct. And we're going to have the fundraiser at Trevor's house. And the night before, they're like, well, why don't you go out to dinner with this group that's going to be there called Nexus? And Nexus is like a club for inherited wealth, international. All these people whose parents are worth like billions of dollars. I go to this Nexus dinner. I knew from meeting all these super rich people since my dad had run for president, they have the mistaken belief that their money will shelter them from change. By then, there had already been multiple published articles that people like Peter Thiel have bought compounds in New Zealand, bunkers, that they would somehow ride out climate change in.
0: And Peter Thiel is...
1: Big Trump supporter... Part of the kind of PayPal mafia, big venture capitalist in Northern California, tied to a lot of hard right Republican policies. And my message is specifically no matter how much money you have, you will not escape this. Nobody's going to be able to survive this, no matter what kind of bunker they have. And a lot of these Nexus members had heard what I said and they understood that. They were like, yeah, we absolutely need to do some of these things. So I was like, cool, let's work together. And then we did the fundraiser at the end of October at Trevor's house for climate mobilization. And I came home and it was All Souls Day. I think it was November 1st. Trump hasn't been elected yet. I just, I foresee horrible things if he was elected. I mean, everybody could. And got another call from Phyllis and James Martinez had come by again. And Phyllis is like, I don't care if your dad's not going to do it. I don't care if any press covers, like get veterans out here. You yourself, we need it. And I told my wife, I'm like, I have to do something. I have to go out there to Standing Rock. I've got to get people out there with me. And I checked my calendar because I had a pretty crazy custody schedule with my kids. And I found like a six-day window that I didn't have custody at the beginning of December. And so I'm like, I want to go out there beginning of December. Are you cool with me doing that? My wife is like, sure, absolutely. And I called Mike Wood because I'd met him a couple of weeks before. And he seemed really into activism and seemed to recognize the environmental threat.
0: And how did you meet him?
1: I met him at the Young Turks co-hosting.
2: Michael A. Wood Jr., a former Baltimore Police Department officer and a guy who's been speaking out about uh, the culture of policing in this country and has some really interesting things to say. The only person that was surprised by what I said was everybody that doesn't live in the hood. Mm-hmm. Everybody that lives in the hood just went, oh, look, a cop admitted it.
1: And I didn't know the first thing about activism at all. So I figured, dude, I need this guy who at least knows something about it because I know zero. We set up a veteran stand for Standing Rock, which was going to be an NGO that would cover taking care of people while we were out there protesting. Organizationally, we didn't really know what we were going to do. We kind of wanted to organize it like a battalion so that you'd have a staff that would come up with everything from personnel issues to medical to supplies and keep track of everyone to make sure they're safe out there. And then Michael Wood put the charity paperwork together. Like he put the bank paperwork together and the GoFundMe paperwork stuff. So that whole side of it was completely him. I was just trying to coordinate all the actual stuff we'd be doing when we were out there. And I put a call out on Twitter for people to join us.
0: To get veterans to join you at Standing Rock in North Dakota?
1: That's right. And like, you know, after a couple of days, I think we had like eight people. And I'd never met any of those eight people. I called... Everyone I'd been in ROTC with, all my friends that I was lieutenants with, some were like, climate change isn't real. And the other's were like, I'm not doing that. So,
0: so the eight people me and eight strangers that responded, they're like, I'll meet you there.
1: Yeah. They're like, I'll meet you there. We'll be there that day. I just put out like when it would happen and said we'd follow up with a, like an operations order at some point. So then my dad came out to LA. And then once I was like, I'm physically going, he was like, Do not go. He's like, Your life is in danger if you get involved with this. If you go up against oil companies, they'll totally destroy you. But if you look at the entire history of the oil industry in the United States, they overthrow governments, they pay for repressive regimes, and they've built up a world of religious ideologues who are going to try and blame the end of the world on gay sex or something instead of putting it where it is which is oil companies, putting carbon into the atmosphere and preventing any other solution to the problem. They were told by their scientists as early as the 1950s, but they certainly accepted it as fact by the 1970s of when the world climate was going to get bad from the use of fossil fuels. They knew that it was going to happen in the 2020s. And once you realize those people knew all these facts in advance, and you put it together with the number of countries that have been overthrown by the oil industry can you understand the danger that it is to stand up to them even in the united states which we think of has rule of law and this says, is
0: november Mitch. this
1: is early november before the election he's like you're never going to be able to solve anything with activism if you want to make a difference come with me to new york come to hillary's inauguration party talk to people there see what you can contribute in terms of moving them on the environment So I was like, okay, I'll do that.
0: I love the confidence. You'll go to Hillary's inauguration party. So Um, you're in New York City. I'm in New
1: York City. It's It's election day. I'm at the party at the Javits Center in like the high donor room. I meet this guy named Andy Kawaja, who's supposedly Hillary's biggest donor. And he cares about the environment. He's like, yeah, I'm interested in the environment. I'm like, yes. And then at like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, suddenly that's it. She's lost the election. (laughs)
2: Now a historic moment. Uh, We can now project the winner of the presidential race. CNN projects Donald Trump wins the presidency. The business tycoon, a TV personality, will become the 45th president of the United States.
1: And the mood in the crowd went from "We're about to be in charge" to "Oh my God, the Nazis have taken over. (laughs) We're all going to be killed." And everybody like goes home completely depressed. I was staying with my dad at the New York Athletic Club, and I remember I had a flight out of JFK at about 6.30 in the morning, and I talked to him down in the lobby, and he said, don't go to Standing Rock. He says, this election and these people in charge, it's going to be like Russia. Anybody who sticks their head up is going to get thumped. He goes, keep your head down, focus on your family, focus on earning a paycheck. And I was like, I will listen to that advice, but not take it. And I went to the airport and I got home and I was like, fuck this shit. We have to assemble people now to do something. And I wrote an operations order.
0: What's the operations order?
1: In the army, when you do something, you give a five paragraph operations order that kind of lays out, here's the situation. Here's the mission. Here's your objectives. here's All the component parts of how it works, you know, bring socks, (laughs) bring a sleeping bag, be prepared for this kind of environment. And Mishko came by while I was writing the operations order because he was back in town. And Mishko was the Serbian producer who told me in 2013 that Trump was going to be president and who brought the Serbian secret police guys by my house. We had a few drinks, we chit-chatted. He's like, you'll be like Trump's enemy you'll be the big enemy to take him down. Look, I thought he was a funny guy, but at the same time, it was the thing of, you know, we overthrew Milosevic. I was one of those guys who helped, you know, so I know how to take down the government. And putting out that operations order suddenly galvanized it from being like 15 people that were going to like hundreds of people started to sign up. This is when everything massively accelerates. I I think... As we start to get into the whole Standing Rock of it all, I have to talk a little bit about spirituality because there's this certain road that I went down that kind of led me there. There's this cult called the I Am Cult that's like mystical white dudes who kind of believe in Christianity and they kind of believe in New Age stuff. And there's kind of tie-ins with Native American ideas. But there's also mixed in all this crazy white supremacist stuff. But after September, almost every person that came into my life was connected to the I am cult.
0: So at this point, the operation has been going on for months and you are completely unaware.
1: Completely unaware.
0: Great. So next week, we're going to focus on how this operation affected your perceptions and personality.
1: Oh, like it turned me into literally a different person. And this is where the story goes really off the rails into places I still can't fully explain.
0: So we'll start with that acceleration and how getting swarmed by the cult fits into this story next week. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more American PSYOP. American PSYOP is a Bunker Crew media production in collaboration with Midas Touch. It was edited and directed by Jack Bryan. Our producers are Stacy Sher, Marley Clements, and Jack Bryan. Executive producers are Ben Mysalis and Grant D. Simone. Sound design by Joy Ellett. I'm your co-host, Emily Bix. Please join us again next time.